As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Joe Lowry, and today I'm joined by a man who rocks a beard in ways that Christian Pulisic could only dream of. It's Adam Snavely. Hello, Adam. Thank you for coming on the show. That's right, Christian Pulisic. Be absolutely jealous of my (laughs) follicle prowess that occurs on my cheeks, my chin, down my neck. Actually, I'm just a very hairy individual overall. It's a blessing and a curse, some might say. But yes, I am, I am known for the beard. I am known for the bills. I am known for plenty of things in the soccer world. But today we're, we're being just known for being Adam and Joe on the Total Soccer Show. That's, man, you never cease to bring the excellent responses to my introductions. I think that's, that might be my favorite part of having you on is getting to hear what you come up with on the spot after I hit you with whatever random intro I've got for you. I think you are known for your beard. You are known for the Bills and your love for the Bills. And that's actually paying off this season. It but really wrong, is. It's the wrong kind of football, Adam. So I'm going to set that aside. I don't think we're actually allowed legally to talk about that on this show. That makes sense. I think sense. there's some sort of penalty for that. So to avoid that penalty, let's move into what we're actually here to do today. We are here to answer listener questions. We have a lot of excellent questions to get to. Adam, are you ready to get started? Ooh, I am so ready. I got my, uh, I got my, my jersey, my, uh, whatever, my moisture wicking soccer gear on. Uh, I, I'm just absolutely ready for you guys to make me sweat with anticipation of these questions. On that note, <laughs> we're getting into it. This first question is from Matt Koss, who says, Michael Bradley got a ton of hate at the end of his national team career. What was the last great game he had before the hate began? I've got an answer, Adam. I know you've got an answer, too. And I want to start with you. Well, first of all, when did the hate begin? Maybe that's Ooh. where we begin with this question. And then we can get to the specific game that Michael Bradley played really well in before all of that. You know, it is a funny question because when you talk about before the hate began, you kind of have to also recognize that there was also an after the hate ended section. I think that in terms of Michael Bradley's career, there was a 
actually a pretty relatively small window of time where everybody was on board with Michael Bradley. Because if we remember, if we go back in Michael Bradley's national team career, uh, it was it was Bob that called him in. His dad called him in. And I do recall for a, a long time, people kind of being being like, oh, he's getting called in because his dad is the national team coach. And that's and that's why he's here. Um, and so I, I think that there's actually only a, a kind of a small window where Michael Bradley was kind of a universal. Everybody is on board with Michael Bradley. Yes. He's one of our best midfielders. Yes. He's the guy that we want starting for the U S in the midfield. Uh, and probably coincided a lot with how much success he had in Serie A um, with a couple of different teams there and kind of everybody recognizing that he was at the time, probably the best U S midfielder, definitely the best U S holding midfielder um, they kind of depended on how you classified people like Lane and Donovan and Clint Dempsey positionally. But it is funny to think about when was the last game where Michael Bradley wasn't hated because he wasn't like a, a Christian Pulisic or a Gio Reyna or, or these guys that come in with a ton of hype and everybody's just like, we want to see these guys right now for the national team. There were plenty of people when Michael Bradley first came into the national team that weren't pleased that he was there. I mean, it's just that middle area, right, that we can operate in to answer this question. It kind of has to be pre-Kuva, right? It definitely has to be pre-Kuva. So that's that's any time before October 2017. Absolutely. But then also after the the nepotism, kind of Bob Bradley, all of those issues that were raised by people on the outside. And so I guess for me, my answer to this question, then I'll flip it back to you, is actually a game that happened right before Kuva or a couple of months before Kuva. And that's USA 1. Mexico won on June 11th, 2017 at the Estadio Azteca in Mexico City. This is the Michael Bradley 40-yard chip game. Do you remember that goal, Adam? Do you remember that really long chip he had over Guillermo Ochoa? That was in the opening minutes of that game down in Mexico City in World Cup qualifying. Michael Bradley picks off the ball at, at right around midfield, drives forward with his first touch, and then on his second touch, he chips Ochoa and sinks the ball into the back of the net to give the U.S. a one nothing lead. And they held on for points. They didn't get three points, but they held on for one point, which is still a pretty big deal in the grand scheme of World Cup qualifying things. And so that goal in that game and what Michael Bradley was still able to do physically, even a few years ago, four years ago now, I guess, his abilities in that game made a huge impact. But of course, it's the goal that really stands out. Yeah, I actually I have two games listed here um, of, of my I know I, I my teachers loved me in high school. <laughs> Um, but that game is one of the games that I pointed out because I feel like I put it there because I think the hate actually for Michael Bradley started before that game. So I don't know if that's really answering the question, but it was one of the last games that really stands out in my mind as one of the last great Michael Bradley games in terms of when I watched the game, I said to myself, Michael Bradley's doing some things that nobody else in our midfield pool is doing right now. And, and Michael Bradley has that ability and I don't know how many other people do because obviously there's the chip, uh, which was a ridiculous goal. Very, very audacious, but there's also his play in the midfield and how Bruce Arena had set his team up, which was he set his team up to defend that game. He set up the team to really, really absorb pressure and task just a few people with running around and trying to make something of 
really anything that Mexico would give the U.S. The U.S. was coming off of a victory and had kind of a short rest and then had to travel to Mexico to Azteca Stadium, where obviously the U.S. has struggled mightily for years and years and years. They do not get many results at the Azteca Stadium. The last two World Cup qualifying trips there, they have managed draws um, and they have managed one victory in a friendly there in the last you know, two decades or something like that. Um, so, and not only the chip, but, but the way that Michael Bradley was facilitating any counterattack that was, that was able to occur, the way that Michael Bradley was moving, kind of marshalling his defensive midfield responsibilities and trying to figure out how best to stymie any Mexican attack that was coming his way. That is the last game that I thought to myself, Michael Bradley is doing some things that, not many other people in the U.S. pool are doing right now. I will say that I think that that was kind of like the last like great Michael Bradley game, but I don't think that is the last great game that he had before the hate started because I think the hate actually precedes that. Okay, so if the if the hate precedes that a little bit, what is your second game, your overachieving game that you have here that that allows Michael Bradley to operate without that hate? So I kind of went back further because I remember a lot of the Michael Bradley hate around the 2014 World Cup and how many people were very, very upset with him. For example, in the Portugal game, uh, when he turns the ball over in midfield and Portugal launches this counterattack that obviously they score on in, uh, I believe in stoppage time, uh, to tie the game 2-2 as opposed to taking a, a famous 2-1 victory off of Cristiano Ronaldo in Portugal in the 2014 World Cup. And how many people were trying to figure out this Klinsman 4-4-2 diamond where Michael Bradley was playing at the top of the diamond and, and all these kind of positional uh, the, the, this positional strangeness that was occurring. And I think that you also have to look at how many people were not pleased when Michael Bradley originally came back to MLS from Italy and how many people immediately kind of said, Oh, his, his play, the dip in the, there's been a dip in quality in his play. Um, obviously MLS is not challenging him as much as Italy does. And therefore he is not as good as he was before. There was a lot of people that said that. So I went all the way back to 2012, Whoa. uh, which is, which is quite a while ago, but to my knowledge, it's a game that really, really sticks out in my mind. And I think is a game that occurred when Everybody was still on board with Michael Bradley. Everybody's starting USA 11, I think, at the time would include Michael Bradley in it for sure. And that is a game that the U.S. won 5-1 to one against Scotland in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, this was pretty shortly after Jurgen Klinsmann's tenure with the U.S. men's national team began. And I, I distinctly remember it just because the U.S. dominated Scotland so thoroughly during this game. Scotland's only goal was an own goal. So the U.S. actually scored six goals in the game, if we're, if we're being honest with ourselves. And Michael Bradley scored this volley where he takes it with the outside of his right foot, probably 20, 25 yards out from goal. And it is just a beautiful curve to the upper far corner. And, and it's the type of goal that, Maybe we're now expecting more a little bit from this current crop of U.S. players. But at the time, 
I didn't expect this goal from from U.S. players. I didn't expect this goal to happen when I was watching the United States men's national team. And Michael Bradley just made it look so simple. And and throughout the game, he was constantly if, if it was MLS, if it was an MLS game, Michael Bradley would have had three or four assists because of how many like hockey assists he had, the secondary assists, the pass before the pass. He was so thoroughly dominant on the ball in the midfield. And it was one of those games where I was like, wow, I think Michael Bradley is one of the best midfielders in the world. Maybe I, I think that he is that good at this point in time. And I think that that is the, the last game in my mind that definitively occurred before the Michael Bradley hate really gained traction once again, um, where I would say that that is a great Michael Bradley game. I really liked this question from Matt because it allowed me and I assume you as well, Adam to go in the wayback machine a little bit and to remember oh, yeah. what Michael Bradley could do on the field when he was more mobile and when he was getting consistent looks with the national team and when he was playing in big games in his club career as well, it was fun to go back and watch footage of him play and remember all the things that he could do before, you know, before Kuva and even before the other hate that you've already detailed for us. It's cool to go back and see this guy's career because he did have and, and still does have a really exemplary national team and club career. I will say, um, just as a little trivia point of order for you, do you want to take a stab at during that 2012 game? Who was starting as a striker for the United States men's national team? Oh boy. Oh boy. Uh, Hercules Gomez. Ooh, he was with the team. I don't remember if he was, uh, specifically playing in that game, but he did not start that game. It's actually Terrence Boyd. Oh boy. Oh it was, boy. it was Terrence Boyd when, when he was kind of a big deal because he was, uh, I think at the time still in Dortmund's Academy or he had just moved to Austria and it was kind of this, Oh, we, we've got a dual national. It's super into the U S and he's, he picked us. Um, and he scored a ton of goals for Dortmund's youth Academy. Let's, let's see what this guy's all about. Um, so it was about one, one of those, like that six months where we were all really, really excited about Terrence Boyd. <laughs> he was starting then. I miss those six months. Any period of time where we're irrationally hyped about a player, there's just some sort of euphoric high that comes with that, you know, that, that group bonding time that we all have. Surely. <laughs> On to the second question of today's show. This one is from Jackie Choi, who asks, how would Gio Reyna's career have been impacted if he had signed a pro contract with NYCFC and then was sold for a transfer fee versus just signing with Dortmund out of NYCFC's academy? Would Major League Soccer's unique financial structure have hindered his career, made no impact, or improved it? So there's a lot to parse through here on this one, Adam. And I think maybe the best place to start is with some background information. So before I turn it over to you to take a stab at Jackie's question, I want to lay out some of the, the groundwork here. So back in 2015, Gio Reyna joined NYCFC's academy. So he joined their youth academy in Major League Soccer and played in the youth academy for NYCFC until 2019. When he was still in the academy, but he moved over to Dortmund to play in their youth system. So he was playing for the Dortmund youth teams at that point, And he was able to make that move before his 18th birthday because he had a European passport. So he moved over to Europe without ever signing a professional contract in Major League Soccer. So Dortmund didn't have to negotiate any sort of transfer fee with NYCFC or, or wade through any of the, the negotiations with Major League Soccer itself. So Reyna moved to Dortmund and started. And now he's, he's starting for their first team on a regular basis. So now I am going to turn it over to you. Would Reyna having signed a professional contract with NYCFC before moving over to Dortmund have hindered his career or made no impact or, or improved it? 
I think that if Gio Reyna signs a deal with NYCFC and NYCFC ostensibly tries to hold on to him a little bit longer, which is usually the move that you're making when you are assigning somebody to a pro contract, you kind of expect that I'm going to hold on a little bit longer. I'm going to see what he can do a little bit. Hopefully he can possibly raise his own transfer fee a little bit and we can get a little bit more cash out of him. I think that if Gina Reyna signs that deal, we're not talking about him in the national team picture right now. I don't, I don't think that we're talking about him in the senior side. And that's partly because of how NYCFC and MLS is necessarily made up and partly because of how Dortmund is made up. When you look at Gio Reyna, when he was first moving to Dortmund and he, and he finally got to Europe, he got his Portuguese passport and, and did all of that. And you look at the person that NYCFC was playing in a position that, uh, that Gio Reyna usually plays kind of in that attacking midfield spot. NYCFC has Maxi Morales there and Maxi Morales in that time is putting up MVP discussion numbers. Um, with his assists, his goals a little bit, but mostly with just the sheer amount of assists that he is providing with his people. Does Gio Reyna get enough opportunity in that ecosystem with a designated player like Maxi Morales ahead of him to significantly bump up his transfer fee enough that NYCFC is persuaded to sell him for the number that they are, I guess, looking for? Or does he kind of waste away on the bench a little bit. And I think that the answer is he doesn't play enough to get that number and NYCFC hold him a little bit longer to try to get him to that number that they're looking for. Because when you're signing a player that's 16, 17 years old, you're obviously trying to make your squad better and you think that that player is good enough. But also when you have somebody like Gio Reyna, who's obviously got international interest, you're also trying to see if you can drive his price up with professional appearances at all. And I think that NYCFC hold on to him a little bit longer as opposed to the way that Dortmund is made up, the way that Dortmund functions, which is we give young kids opportunities all the time. The opportunities that Gio Reyna got six to 12 months into being with Dortmund's academy and scoring a, a bunch of really impressive goals for the U19s, then subsequently being moved up to the senior team for training and then into the senior team proper, a lot of MLS teams aren't made up that way. They don't, they don't do that. They don't, they don't trust a lot of the younger kids soon enough for that. So Gio Reyna's rise, obviously, I think is facilitated by his early move to Dortmund because he gets more opportunity there than I think he would if he signed that pro contract with NYC. I 100% agree. And to get back to the question a little bit, the the last bit that Jackie asks is, would Major League Soccer's unique financial structure have hindered his career or, or kept it the same or improved it? I don't think it's about Major League Soccer's financial structure here, honestly. I think it's exactly what you were saying, Adam. I think it's about the timing. I think it's about getting him to Dortmund as soon as possible with that European passport to get him involved with the club there. And and if he hadn't been able to move at the early age that he did, if he hadn't been able to move before he turned 18, he wouldn't be starting every game for Dortmund right now. He would have been he would have been in a Joe Scally situation who just moved to Borussia Mönchengladbach on his 18th birthday, having played, I think, five minutes for NYCFC. I mean, it would have been. It would have been slightly different because I do think Reyna would have played more than Scally, although I don't think he would have been an every game starter necessarily, although it's hard to say. But either way, I think this is simply about timing. And the earlier that you can get a generational talent like Gio Reyna 
to a club that is elite at developing and giving chances to young players, the better that's going to be. So I don't think this is a Major League Soccer issue as far as them being willing to sell players. They are increasingly willing to sell guys over and and make profits on the players that they're developing. But I think this is simply about the timing. I agree. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Adam, I've asked you to, do you want to ask me this next question? Absolutely, Joe. This question comes from Kenneth Seiden, which is how I think your last name is pronounced. (laughs) If it's not, I apologize profusely. But how dependent is Burhalter's tactical system on center backs playing on the side of their dominant foot? You could say Brooks and McKenzie, both left-footed, play together with a big adjustment to what Greg has been doing. Um, And before I throw this to you, Joe, a point of order here, I think, which I think I've said that phrase a couple of times, but I'm going to continue. It's a good phrase. Mark McKenzie is right-footed, I'm pretty sure, actually. He is right-footed. That's what I thought. That is that is what I I believe. So uh, that kind of throws the question into disarray somewhat. (laughs) Um, Mark McKenzie does typically play left back for the Philadelphia Union, and he has played left back or left center back, I should say. And he has played left center back for Greg Berhalter in the U.S. national team. But it is Good to remember that Mark McKenzie is kind of ambidextrous uh, with his feet, as far as I can tell. And he, before his primary partnership with the Union was with Jack Elliott, he was actually playing right center back for the Philadelphia Union when Austin Trusty was the left center back slash left back for the Philadelphia Union. He played both positions, as I recall, or at least played left back with the U.S. youth national teams uh, and was a very left footed player. Mark McKenzie was playing right center back. So... The question of could John Brooks and Mark McKenzie uh, play together, even though they both play left side, to me is a little bit easy. Yeah, because Mark McKenzie's already played right center back before in his career. <laughs> yeah, I liked this question because it was similar to the Michael Bradley one in that I got an excuse to go back and watch film. I enjoyed going back and looking at Mark McKenzie driving forward with the ball or him playing passes out of the back and breaking lines for the union and with the U.S. national team. And he does that so often from that left-sided center back spot with his left foot, but he's not left-footed. He just has an awesome, awesome weak foot, which is a really advantageous thing to have a player who can use both feet at a high level. If we set that aside, though, if we if we take the specific example that Kenneth gave us and we set it aside and just think about what the actual premise of the question is. So maybe less about can Brooks and McKenzie both play together, even though they're both left-footed, which is not necessarily true. And instead we change it to can a center back in Borhalter system or maybe even in a, a basic possession system, can they be played on the side of their non-dominant foot and, and succeed and really fit in that system? And I think looking specifically at what Berhalter has done, the answer is yes, because it's already been it's already been done. 
Aaron Long has played left-sided center back for the United States men's national team, and he is right-footed. He is a right-footed player who likes to pass with his right foot and does not like to pass with his left foot. That does cause a few issues, though, when you're on the ball in possession, not just with Aaron Long, but with any, any center back playing on the side of their weak foot. When you have a guy, let's say it is Mark McKenzie playing at left-sided center back, even though he is two-footed, his feet aren't exactly equal in terms of how he can pass the ball. He is still right foot dominant. And so when the ball comes to him or another right footed center back playing on the left side, a lot of times their natural inclination is to stop the ball with their right foot and play passes back across to the right side of the field or or to spray passes over to the left side wide, wider out on that left wing. And so when you have a guy playing on the side of his non-dominant foot, it becomes a little bit more difficult to open up the field and to switch possession back and forth and to make the field big. Instead, sometimes those touches can, those players can take an extra touch and try to get the ball on their strong foot, or they can, they can have moments that aren't as smooth in possession in the back because they're playing on the side of their non-dominant foot. Now, there are some advantages as well. You get different passing angles. You can exploit different spaces if you're playing on the side of your non-dominant foot. But all that to say, there is a bit of a trade-off. There is a, a difference in, in where you want to put a player based off of what he can do with the ball. But that's a long-winded way of me saying, I think you can totally play in Burhalter's system on the side of your weak foot, and it's even been done before. Kenneth, you have no idea how happy you've made Joe for <laughs> giving him an, an, a further excuse to get into the weeds about center back play. Um, our foremost, our foremost center back enthusiast, Joseph Lowry, everybody. I do agree with you, Joe. Um, I think that it is pretty clear that Burhalter has typically played center backs on the side that they usually play for their clubs a lot of the time, uh, which just speaks to me to comfortability. Um, and especially with, with John Brooks, obviously John Brooks has been a, a left-sided center back pretty much his entire career. Um, and that seems to clearly be where he is most comfortable. So you're looking usually at somebody to fulfill the right center back position with uh, next to him, as opposed to just switching him to the right and seeing if somebody else can play the left. But yeah, I agree. I, I think that it, it seems that this already has happened in Burhalter system. And, and I don't think that a big adjustment from Greg is needed to play somebody that is possibly non-dominant sided uh, in the center back system that he has. Um, going a little bit further into something that I have dubbed a legacy question uh, for our next question. Uh, we have Ira Jersey. How do college kids get selected to go to the MLS combine and be eligible for the MLS draft? I call it a, a legacy question because to my knowledge, I think the MLS combine is dead. Is that official? Yeah. I mean, I think you and I have some sad news for everybody out there. The, the, maybe the most major league soccer thing that exists or, or that did exist in the major league soccer combine is dead. It's gone. The 2019 version was the last one that has ever happened and probably will ever happen. Major league soccer, I guess, decided that it was a better use of time and resources to not have teams come out and scout a combine, which while it makes me sad because that's just an awesomely ridiculous thing, it's also <laughs> the right move when things like Y Scout or, or any online digital film platform exists. You don't really need to go and scout a bunch of college players. There are resources to allow you to do that remotely. Um, but yeah, the MLS Combine is is gone. And, and, it, and it, feel, it felt like this... Uh, I don't know. It felt like this this kind of obvious like American sports tradition of of other other leagues. Specifically, I'm thinking of the NFL. We have the NFL combine and, and players kind of run all through these tests and stuff. Um, but it felt so much less useful for soccer in so many ways. Um, and and it 
the the primary joy I took from MLS Combine was usually the Adidas branded team names that uh, you would see out on the field. So you would get stuff like Team Tango versus uh, whatever team. Team X or, or Team Addy Pro kind of thing. Uh, all, all these little uh, boot names for for the teams that were competing each other. But it's really, really difficult to tell how good a player is when you're just kind of throwing them in with a bunch of random teammates and telling them, all right, go play this other team that's also completely made of random teammates. Some people obviously do shine and and some people raise their draft stock through this. Some people fell a little bit. Um, but it, it, I... I'm kind of glad, I think, to see it as as a relic of the past and to see teams just rely a little bit more on their actual scouting networks and trying to figure out uh, what college players should be interesting to them in the draft. Um, as far as the the process for getting invited to the Combine and being eligible for the draft, I believe there was something of a voting system with a bunch of MLS coaches and specifically with the combine, there was also NCAA coaches involved. The Caribbean football union also was allowed to nominate players to send to the combine. And then you get all these players, MLS coaches kind of put them all into a pool as they nominate. And that's how the draft pool is formed in a nutshell. It's hard for me to imagine a thing that most major league soccer coaches could care about less than doing everything you just said, right? Imagine <laughs> trying to get Bruce Arena. Maybe maybe that's not a great example because he did coach in college. But you get what I'm saying. Imagine trying to get these guys to sit down and parse through a bunch of names of college kids that they don't know, they're not familiar with, they don't know how they play, and making them vote to choose which guys get to go to the old Major League Soccer Combine. That is that is <laughs> next level. I love oh, that so much. Well, Bruce Arena famously passed on the later rounds with the LA galaxy multiple years with a, with a super draft picks, just straight up in third and fourth rounds of, of the super draft just said, yeah, we're good. We, we picked a couple people. We don't, we don't want anybody else, which is hilarious to think of an NFL or NBA team doing that. Cause it doesn't happen. Like it, it just doesn't happen at all. Um, but the galaxy were kind of uh, Bruce arena specifically with the galaxy was a little bit infamous for doing that on multiple occasions. But yeah, you kind of have this point now where how valuable is the college draft? Obviously there's still kids in the NCAA that are worth getting. If we take Daryl DK, for example, um, who came out of Virginia in the draft this year and put together what would have been a rookie of the year performance. If the, technical rookie of the year award still existed um, as opposed to the young player of the year award. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, it is, it is a kind of a, a funny uh, little bit esoteric MLS topic. I feel like we need Sam and Paul to get in here on this one to really give us all of like the, the history of the, the just the sheer logistics of the combine and the MLS super draft. I've got one little nugget left on the super draft before we move on. Uh, one more little bit on the eligibility and how that process actually works. Cause I've wondered this as well. Ira, I, I honestly did not know how this all went down with the exception of a few pieces that I, that I, that it sort of penetrated my brain in the past, but the official wording for major league soccer's rules for eligibility for the 2021 super draft is this players eligible for selection in MLS super draft 2021 include college seniors, Generation Adidas players who, as an aside, are are underclassmen who have signed a special contract and have almost an exemption to be eligible earlier on. So college seniors, gen- Generation Adidas players, and players that have waived their college eligibility by competing in a domestic professional league. And they also, I did some asking around because 
if if those are the criteria and college seniors can enter the draft, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of college soccer seniors probably playing in the United States. And in the past, there's only been just over 100 players that have been announced as eligible for the MLS Super Draft. So I did some asking around, and apparently players have to formally declare. They have to decide and have to have to make a declaration that they're entering the draft. So that's why there's there's usually only about 100 plus guys that are that, that do end up being eligible between seniors and Generation Adidas players and a, a couple other small in the weeds things. So hopefully, Ira, that answers your question, because as Major League Soccer tends to be, it is just a little bit complicated. Yeah, I think that we have kind of exhausted all of our resources on the MLS Super Draft. So uh, let us move on to another question from Kenneth Seiden. My two and a half year old son will watch games with me, but he always insists on rooting for the other team. Do I disown him now? Ah, the hard hitting questions we all came for. Well, Kenneth, I will say that if the uh, the can opener baked beans dad guy on Twitter has taught us anything, it's that disowning your son now when he is, you know, a toddler still uh, for liking a different sports teams will teach him valuable life lessons and how to be a contributing member to society via the self-sufficiency he learns so that is the short and sweet answer for you i am pro disowning of the sons yeah i mean i am also pro disowning but not quite yet i think there's a couple things that, that you got to try first but disowning still might be in the cards um my my real strategy here for you kenneth is bribery um it's it's short it's sweet that's the way to do it going maybe going out for ice cream if the right team wins or even going out for ice cream if uh if if the team that you cheer for loses but you somehow do convince your son to cheer for the right team that way you you sort of incentivize him to stick with the team through thick and thin I, maybe maybe his bedtime happens to be shifted back 30 minutes if he cheers for the right team i mean there are ways to go here but if if bribery doesn't work and if using bean dad as an example doesn't work then yeah i think we uh, i think we need to move down towards disownment in the future I like the description of bribery as short and sweet, because if you are taking your son, your two and a half year old son out for ice cream, he is short and he is getting sweets. <laughs> yes, I definitely did that on purpose. That was not at all an accident. I'm glad you picked up my uh, my clever wording there, Adam. Oh, I got you. I got you, Joe. <laughs> I know what you're trying to do. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This next question is from Shreyas Romani, who asks... What is the TSS opinion? As a, a quick pause, I like that you and I get to decide what the TSS opinion is. Yes, the power. so much authority right now, and I'm definitely going to abuse it. What is the TSS opinion on the career of Brazilian Ronaldo? I feel like I'm too young to have seen him at the peak, at his peak, excuse me, before all of his knee injuries. Would he be thought of as highly as Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, Pele, and Maradona had he not suffered so many injuries? There's a lot to get to, just like there have been with a couple other other questions that we've already answered. Where do you want to start here, Adam, going through Brazilian Ronaldo? Uh, I'm going to start with a yes, no question. Uh, yes, 
Ronaldo without injuries would be absolutely mentioned in the same breath as Messi, Ronaldo, Maradona, Pele, all these people that are kind of pointed to as, is this the best player of all time? Yeah. Yeah, he would. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and maybe that's, that's just me as um kind of a leaning on my uh, Brazil as my second team because my, my mother is Brazilian, as I've said before on this podcast. Um, but Ronaldo, R9 Ronaldo in his heyday, and when he was young, specifically before, um, before that 1998 World Cup. So we're looking at kind of the early 90s when he was a teenager and then coming up. He was possibly the most pure all-around striker to ever exist. And he possibly will never be replicated in that form. Um I, I have a, a couple of, of stats, a couple of things, um, just just some raw numbers. Uh, between 1993 and 1999, he scored 115 goals in 134 games. He had over 200 goals for club and country by the time he was 23 years old. He made the jump to Europe at 18 with PSV, and he scored 54 goals in 58 games there as an 18-year-old. He won World Player of the Year when he was 20. I believe he's the youngest to ever win it still. And, and basically in a word, he was, he was unstoppable. He, he was, it was a, a wild burst of pace coupled with, um, coupled with the, the size that he brought. And, and, and he wasn't, um, a giant by today's standards. Certainly he was, I believe, six foot even. Um, but he was big enough that the, the kind of pace that he brought to the game was surprising. And there's this, there's this wonderful video of all of these legendary French defensive players like Lillian Taram and, and Patrick Vieira and, and a few other guys before the 98 World Cup, um, who were all playing in Italy at the time, describing what it was like to defend Ronaldo. And it's these guys basically saying that he's impossible to defend in his, in his healthy, completely Ronaldo R9 state. He made the ball disappear. You would see the ball and you would feel that you were perfectly timed in your challenge and he would just take the ball away. And, and that's, that's what he did. He, he was so fast. He was so good on the ball. He would score right footed goals, left footed goals. He would score with a header. He wasn't afraid to get scrappy and get dirty goals. He was not afraid to go and produce something absolutely stunning. And before his knees caved in, basically between 1998 and 2002, just this constant recurring nightmare of knee injuries. And if you look at a picture of, of Ronaldo's knees um, in like 2003, 2004, it is kind of gruesome, just the amount of scarring from all the surgeries that he had to have on his knees to even be able to return to play and successfully return to play, which he did between 2002 and 2006-ish with uh, Real Madrid, uh, where he clearly wasn't at the height of his powers like he had been prior to that 98 World Cup, but still was able to be extremely productive for that Los Galacticos team, still scored in in a World Cup final and won a World Cup in 2002. Ronaldo was just unbelievably good. And we've, we've kind of lost it a little bit because now we're in a zone where, oh, there's a lot of fans that never really got to see him play live and saw him do the things that he did. Um, but, uh, Luis Enrique, uh, said it best actually, um, because he played with Ronaldo on, uh, Barcelona and, and during Ronaldo's brief stint with Barcelona, um, 
and uh, he we see and he said something along the lines of we see Messi doing all these things now. We're used to Messi being able to dribble three, four, five defenders and score a goal. Um, and we've kind of become a little bit more used to that. But I don't think I had ever seen it before Ronaldo did it. And Ronaldo did it with such consistency. Ronaldo's injuries, his knee injuries, I think did did limit public perception of him, or at least now, looking back on it, he is not as highly regarded as I think he would have been if he had stayed healthy for his entire tenure at Inter Milan and if he had been been able to stay fit and consistently playing games throughout the the mid to late 90s into the the early to mid 2000s we don't get to see the full picture of Ronaldo because he had those injuries but people who played against him the entire French national team leading up to the 1998 World Cup right uh Luis Enrique who played with him and Paolo Maldini who played against him at AC Milan when Ronaldo was at Inter Milan Maldini put Maradona and Ronaldo in the same sentence and so maybe we now 10 years ish 20 years ish removed from Ronaldo's career Maybe we now don't tend to put him in the same breath as Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo and Pele and Maradona, but other people who actually played soccer and played against him and played with him do. And I think that's the key. They saw him at the height of his powers. They saw him picking up the ball at midfield and driving against an opposing center back and forcing that defender back on his heels, turning him and then shooting with his right foot and scoring goals over and over and over again. They saw him develop and and, and take shots and make shots and create plays and draw defenders in and create space for his teammates. They saw him do all of those things live against their own teams oftentimes. And so I think it's the opinion of those soccer figures that matters most when thinking about the career and legacy of Brazilian Ronaldo. And I don't think there's any doubt that he he certainly would have been without the injuries in the same tier as Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo and Pele and Maradona. And there's a strong argument that he's teetering on the edge of that tier as it is. Let me put it to you this way. R9 Ronaldo shaved his head into just a forehead triangle of hair on on like just the tip of his brow. And he was so good that people like kids started imitating that haircut, which was a truly terrible haircut. If I have to give my, my aesthetic opinion on it. Um, he was that good. <laughs> what are the odds that you show up to our next podcast recording session with that haircut? Extremely poor. Uh, the odds are bad. The odds are really, really bad. <laughs> that is extremely unfortunate. Do you have anything else to add on Ronaldo before we get to our next question, Mr. Snavely? Um, I, I do. I don't outside of just kind of formally banging the gavel on the total soccer show opinion machine, um, which we have been tasked with doing today. Uh, so the total soccer show opinion of Arnie Ronaldo is that, uh, barring knee injuries. Yes. One of the best players to ever play. Bang. Done. Boom. It's just that easy. We should, we should, you know, sort of bang that authority that we have more often. I think we need to make that a, a regular feature. Yeah, I'll talk to Taylor about it. I'm sure he'll be fine. Perfect. Yeah, well, we can, we can get him on the phone after this. This next yeah. question is also from Shreyas Romani, who asks, how much do MLS teams make from jersey sales in comparison to other clubs around the world? This one's tricky because there's not a lot of transparency in Major League Soccer finances or, or really <laughs> in a lot of finances around the world. But I think we can piece together an answer slowly, bit by bit. So, Adam, I'm going to turn it to you first. What did you find to give you a little bit of a better grasp on how to answer this question? Um, I kind of followed the smoke because there's not really a way to find the fire in this case. Um, there's there's no numbers posted anywhere. Um, obviously, there are people who do know but can't talk about it publicly for 
several reasons. Um, some journalist friends of mine and, and the way that the people that I trust to know things about MLS speak about things like Jersey shit, Jersey sales. Um, it, it strikes me that MLS teams don't sell very much. And especially not when you compare it to say some global European brands, I would say that the best MLS selling teams, which at this point I would probably say maybe Atlanta, Seattle, probably are two of the best MLS clubs in terms of Jersey sales. Um, maybe, maybe Austin FC comes in and takes over that. I saw some, some positive numbers on their particular Jersey sales after their launch. So who knows? I don't. Um, but I would say those teams that are at the top of the Jersey sales pyramid for MLS, if they are on par with, some European teams or, or even South American teams kind of thing. It would be below any club that has more of an international global recognizable brand. So that kind of puts them below teams that are playing in the champions league, the Europa league, the Copa Libertadores uh, teams that are going to the FIFA world cup. Um, I would put them more on par with, teams that are playing in Europe and maybe even a few teams that are playing in European top leagues, like in England, in Spain and Germany and that sort of thing, but that are playing almost always kind of more in the mid to the bottom half of the table, those clubs, that would be my best educated guess. And it is a guess. I, I, I do have to make that clear. I don't have the insider information, but based on what I kind of constantly see from some people that I do trust and that are in the know, I would put it kind of at that level. I agree. I think I have it at a similar level, although I arrived at it in a slightly different way. So I'm going to I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here, but it's going to make sense at the end, I promise. Oh, I can't so, wait. Pablo Maurer has written in the past and others have reported it more recently that Major League Soccer is going to allow this season a handful of its best selling clubs to have and sell a third jersey, a third kit. Major League Soccer has tried that in the past and they didn't sell enough to be worth keeping around and worth the expenses, but they're trying again. And so a handful of these teams that sell a lot of jerseys are going to get to have a third kit. So Merritt Paulson, who owns the Portland Timbers, tweeted out that you need to sell 100,000 kits to, to be eligible to have a third kit. So that gives you a little bit of an understanding of where Major League Soccer stands and where a lot of these teams stand in terms of how many jerseys they sell. If it's only a few of the top selling teams in Major League Soccer, that tells me that there are only going to be a handful of teams that sell more than 100,000 jerseys and therefore get that third kit. A lot of higher tier European teams sell 100,000 jerseys of one player. I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo, when he was at Manchester United or moving to Juventus, his jerseys sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Uh, Liverpool has sold hundreds of thousands of copies of different players on their team, of, of their jerseys. A few Major League Soccer teams, and only a few, are hitting 100,000 jerseys sold at a relatively comparable price. You've got a lot of expenses that come across uh, that come along with making jerseys and selling them. Uh, you got to give the the apparel company their cut. You have to pay for the expenses and all of those things. So by the time that you take all those expenses out, I would be surprised if many major league soccer teams are making a significant amount of money from jersey sales at all. And certainly, I think they're making less money than a lot of bigger clubs from around the world. Yep, 
I kind of agree with you there. Uh, and I think that that is probably the extent of how sure we can be based <laughs> on, you know, us not having access to the numbers, which sometimes that's just the way things are. But uh, appreciate the question nonetheless. Absolutely. And we've got more excellent questions to get to. This one is from David Heineman, who says, given the U.S. recently posted successive six goal wins, I think it's basically a given that we'll win the World Cup in 2026. Uh, just like David's words and apparently Adam's words, not necessarily my own, but uh, I can I can feel the tongue in cheek here. So David then asks, so my question is, who will be the oldest player on that cup winning squad in 2026? There are a few different options in my mind uh, as contenders to be the oldest player on the squad in 2026. I think I've got uh, got four players and then I whittle it down from there. Adam, who are a couple of contenders for you to potentially be the oldest player, at least at the World Cup for the United States in 26? You know, I, I kind of started at a spot where I said, it's going to be someone that I don't expect it to be. It's, it's going to be some, some person that I, I don't think about, or at least I, I don't think about as much as other people. Kind of similar to how we all thought Landon Donovan would be the one getting to four World Cups and it turned out to be Demarcus Beasley or, or something like that. Um, and, and that's, that's kind of how I started it. And then I realized that I was just going about it the wrong way and I needed to look at positions. Because if we're talking about who the oldest players are in any given team, there is one position that usually stands out quite a bit for most teams, and that's goalkeeper. Goalkeepers yep. have longer careers. They just do. That, that, is, that is kind of a, a fact of, of soccer at this point. Like We, we know this. Um, usually, the oldest players on any given team can be found in the goalkeeping ranks a lot of the time. So I thought to myself, all right, Who's the person, since we currently have a starting goalkeeper and more goalkeeping options for the U.S. men's national team that are only going to be in their early 30s, so practically teenagers in this discussion at the time of the 2026 World Cup, the people like Zach Steffen, Matt Turner at all are not going to be the oldest players that lift this trophy. Clearly, I think we can we can make that assumption right now. I said, who's going to take that that Nick Memorial Nick Ramondo Memorial third goalkeeper spot who is going to be the person that is just the constant this is the third goalkeeper this is the person we're just going to keep calling in because they are pretty trustworthy I trust them and and that is that and two names immediately popped up in my mind as people that could potentially be pretty darn old but still playing and still on that 2026 World Cup championship United States men's national team. And those two people are Bill Hamid and Sean Johnson because those guys just constantly seem to be around Burhalter setup, especially Sean Johnson, um, certainly. And in 2026, they will be, Sean Johnson will be 38 years old and Bill Hamid will be 36 years old. So I would put my money probably on one of those two guys being the oldest player. Yeah, I have Sean Johnson at the top of my list as well, because he's been in the picture for Berhalter since day one. I believe he was in that first January camp back in 2019. He's got better foot skills than Bill Hamid, which I think Berhalter likes, and he's just been more or less a staple since Berhalter took over. So I think goalkeeper was a smart way to approach this, and and either Sean Johnson or Bill Hamid are definitely in contention to be the oldest player and, and certainly the oldest goalkeepers available at the time. I split it up. I, I kind of answered this question twice, a little bit like you did earlier. I guess I'm also a bit of an overachiever. You're allowed that. You're allowed that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to take that. 
David, I split it up into goalkeepers and outfield players because I do think it is most likely that there will be an older goalkeeper in that Nick Romando. What was it again, Adam? Nick Nick Romando Memorial role? Yes, the, the Nick Romando Memorial third goalkeeper position. I mean, that is the highest honor that any national team player could hope to achieve. And so I think there will be one of those guys on that roster. But then I did kind of the same thing Adam did, but in the outfield. I thought about where some of the older positions might be, or or at least current older players in the pool, and which ones I think could still be around. And a few guys that came to mind, John Brooks, Aaron Long, Sebastian Legette, and Josie Altidore. Those are the four players that I had on my list. Josie Altidore's hamstrings, I don't think are going to make it to 2026. He would be 36 years old. And I do think he, if he was healthy, he would definitely still be involved. But I'm not willing to, uh, to bet the farm on that one. Sebastian Legette will be 33. Aaron Long will also be 33. John Brooks will be 33 as well. So that's a strong contingent right there. And and just because of birthdays, Sebastian Legette is the oldest guy of those three players. And so I think he's he's my choice for at least the outfield player who will be the grandpa on the 2026 World Cup winning team. Nice. I I <laughs> agree with that. I, I think that uh, in terms of uh, Josie did come to mind, uh, but given his injury history uh, and how that, especially when you get on the wrong side of 30, how those tend to compound. I, I have a feeling that the 2022 cycle will be Josie's last hurrah uh, with the U S I, I think. Um, but yeah, I think those are, those are some pretty sensible choices you've made. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Right back at you. We have one more United States men's national team themed question, and it's our last question for today's show. Adam Patrick Delaney asks, if you could add one player to the men's national team under the following stipulations, who would you add? And so here are the stipulations. The player can't come in and instantly be the best player like Messi or Ronaldo. They have to be young enough to realistically play in the 26 World Cup so that that he has a right around a 94 birth year. And I think we could even go a little bit earlier than that. So those are the two. They can't be a legendary type talent. And they also have to be young enough to play, although I, I think we could still get away with a few grandpas in there too. Yeah, I, I would like to say just uh, on behalf of uh, speaking of our elders and and how we, we should respect them more. Um, the 1994 birth date for 2026 is 32 years old. Um, and every single World Cup, every single one, there are people that are older than 32 years old or 32 years old and older that play and, and play even important roles in every single world cup. that happens. If you look at the 2018 world cup final, France won starting 32 year old Olivier Giroud. There's 32 year old Hugo Lloris. They were playing the Czech Republic who are starting 32 year old Mario Mandzukic and 33 year old Luka Modric, who just so happened to win the world player of the year that year. So I think that we can treat the 1994 cutoff birth date a little bit more fluidly than that. Um, because almost always there are players that go above that age range. I was interested in that stipulation that says they can't clearly be the best player on the team already. And, and later he kind of said like, I just don't want a top 10 player of the year in the question, but I was also kind of, curious about kind of saying like, okay, who would enter into the U S team and immediately make the team better, but wouldn't immediately and obviously be necessarily the best player on the team, uh, from anywhere else that, that, that is a little bit more interesting to me, um, as a concept. And I think a lot of people would 
kind of pick a striker right now. Uh, striker being an obvious area of need for the U.S. But for me, I'm still curious to see how a lot of these current options for the U.S. pan out. Um, both in Europe, you have people like Josh Sargent, obviously, Tim Weah, who I think might still be a striker, Sebastian Soto, a lot of other people, um, and even some current domestic guys, people like Daryl DK, people like Jeremy Abobase, possibly, people possibly like Jesus Ferreira, even Benji Michel, who first got his first call up to the U.S. men's national team, uh, wherever Chris Mueller gets to play, even though he's more of a winger, I think, but that's fine. All those things are, are good, and I kind of want to see how those pan out. If I had to pick somebody that I think would grow with the team and kind of get make the team better immediately, I'm actually choosing to put somebody at that right center back position. And I know that you will love that, Joe, because I know I how you feel about center backs. <laughs> but I really think that it would be really, really good for somebody to just take the reins at that right center back position next to John Brooks and give people, guys like Chris Richards, even guys like Mark McKenzie, a more clear target to aim at as, if I want to be playing for the U.S. men's national team, I got to be better than this guy. And kind of introduce that competition a little bit more, as opposed to the very wishy-washy nature of the right center back position as it has stood for the last two years, where we still are kind of like, we're playing Matt Miazga there, but we don't know if he's as good as some other people we're playing Aaron long, but should we really be playing Chris Richards? Should we really be playing Walker Zimmerman? Should we be playing uh, Mark McKenzie? I don't know. There's a lot of different people, a lot of different names that are thrown around in that spot. So I would like to bring in somebody from a different team and make them that right center back position. And I chose Ezri Konsa from Aston Villa an England international who I've been extremely impressed with this season, both in the Premier League and at the restart of last season when he kind of really started to solidify that partnership at Aston Villa with England center back Tyrone Mings. I am very, very impressed with Ezri Konza, both in how calmly and consistently that he defends um, and, and very, very uh, that I'm, and hammering home that consistency point because I think that a very, very consistent defender and and presence in the middle of the field is something that the United States always, always can use. We, uh, we have never had a surplus. I think of consistent and calm defenders. I, I feel relatively confident in saying that. And I also really, really love his passing accuracy and his ability to splay the ball further afield, kind of pinging the ball in those long diagonals not unlike what we saw John Brooks do to Wales just a couple of months ago. So, to answer your question, if I had to pick somebody, anybody in the world to just say, "Hey, this is this guy's on the US now. This is the person that is going to make a team make the team better, is somebody that can be around for 2020 2026, but is not obviously the best player on the team as soon as he walks in, I'm going to pick Ezri Konsa. You uh, you checked all my boxes there at the end when you talked about his ability to contribute offensively. I'm so in. You picked a center back. You picked a guy who can do stuff with the ball. Fits well next to John Brooks. Adam, uh, you nailed it. I'm, I'm going for it. I'm all in on that. I'm also on the back line with my choice to answer Patrick's question. Didn't see that one coming. I've stayed on the defensive side of things, but I'm moving <laughs> away from the middle. So I, I'm shifting away from my center back bias oh so slightly and looking at a left back. I don't think this player would necessarily be hands down, the best player on the squad. He he might be the best player on the squad, and so maybe I'm bending the rules slightly. 
But for me, it's Alfonso Davies because uh-huh. not only do you get to poach him from Canada, which has its own advantages in terms of CONCACAF qualifying and future World Cup cycles, but you get one of the most talented young attacking left backs in the world who fits perfectly into Berhalter's system. There's no reality in which I wouldn't take Alfonso Davies on this team. And I do think it fits because I think there's a strong argument to be made that that Christian Pulisic or Gio Reyna in the next couple of years could at least be level with Alfonso Davies in terms of overall talent and ability. I, uh, I appreciate the 5D chess that you have going on with taking away, taking him away from Canada and uh, making our path to qualification easier by virtue of poaching him from another country. <laughs> uh, that's nice. I will say that uh, taking Alfonso Davies and putting him at left back is immediately going to give us uh, an, an, an excruciating headache uh, of an argument on U.S. Twitter that would last and rage for years and years of should we be playing Alfonso Davies as a winger or a forward or should we be playing him as a left back? So I will say I would like that to be considered a little bit more in your choice, but I do accept it. No, the, the more trouble I can stir up on United States men's national team Twitter, the better. I think that's sort of become my my thought process recently. And so I think let's let's have those discussions about Alfonso Davies because, man, we're letting Canadian men's national team Twitter have all the fun. And I want to get a piece of that pie. Well, you know, yeah, we're we're letting them, I think, go through a lot of what, what we go through consistently on a, on a day to day basis. Um, it, it feels like we're loaning some of our angst to them a little bit, um, although it must be said that we have qualified for the World Cup. Not the last one, obviously, but far more recently than they have. So I, I, I don't I don't pretend to, to know all the Canadian soccer angst that occurs. Uh, I, I, I humbly offer my apologies if I have uh, misappropriated said things. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that obviously is a pretty good choice. <laughs> Adam, one show, nine questions, plenty of soccer talk. Thank you so much for coming on the show with me today and answering all of these phenomenal Lister questions. I truly appreciate it. Joe, as always, it's an absolute pleasure to come in and uh, give the official Total Soccer Show opinion on several things. Uh, speak on some things that I, I am clearly not an expert in, but I can make some educated guesses on. And as always, talking to you. It's a pleasure, Pepper Joe. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. Listeners, thank you for listening. And the Total Soccer Show will be back again soon. 